Welcome to episode 47 of the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and occasionally anything that we really want it to be about. I'm Michael. I'm Marie. And I'm Corey. And today we're talking about Stanislav Lem's The Siberiad. The Siberiad was first published in Polish in 1967 and was translated into English in 1974. It is about robots, specifically fables for the cybernetic age, so fairy tales for robots. Stanislaw Lem himself is a hugely influential author, probably, not probably, definitely Poland's most important science fiction author. And I just want to get a sense of what your experience with Stanislaw Lem has been before this, how you were introduced to him, and whether you knew anything about the Siberiad before I mentioned it, you guys decided to pick it up. I was introduced to Stanislaw Lem in university, actually. I took a science fiction comparative literature course, and we read Solaris, which is arguably his most famous novel. It is an amazing book. It's very dense, but it is amazing. And then a few years ago, I read... I'm drawing a blank on the title, but it was basically the one where... There, oh, His Master's Voice. It's about trying to make contact with aliens. And I'd always known about the Siberiad. Like, I remember, I think it was probably mentioned as, like, one of his important works or something in the class or at some point... And I always knew it was short stories. I always knew it was about, you know, cybernetics and robotics. And I kind of had this image in my head of what it was. And it was not even remotely close to that image. In a pleasant way, though. Um, I won't jump too far ahead because I know we're going to be talking about a lot of this kind of thing. But it was very much something I was aware of, but apparently didn't properly understand. Well, I'm married to Corey. So he read this. And while reading it, I was like, what's that? He's like, oh, it's, it's another science fiction book by Lem. And I'd read Solaris, but after the two of you told me about it. So I'm always just following along with this. And I was like, hey, I like science fiction and fantasy. And I picked this up, not actually to the purpose of joining this podcast, but because I happen to be traveling and I usually bring short story collections when I'm traveling. So I was reading it. And then I learned we were going to be podcasting very soon. So I, I finished it 20 minutes ago, reading the second half of it. Well, we thank you for taking that last stretch and taking your morning so that you could have a complete picture of this book that could join in. I have known about Stanislav Lem a long time since regular listeners of this podcast, if you exist, already know that I'm Polish. I was born in Poland. Uh, but I'd only read a few short stories, and then similar to Corey, we took the same science fiction course at university. We just took it in different terms. Uh, so I was introduced to Solaris through that course. I love Solaris, and then I proceeded to not read anything by Status Wavle <laughs> for the next however many years afterwards, despite knowing he was such an important author and a very good author, obviously, because Solaris is amazing. So this year, uh, a little while ago, I picked up a giant stack of Stanislav Lem books from 
somebody's cabin. Basically, they passed away, and the family opened up the cabin to take their books from, and he had a lot of Stanislav Lem in there. So I have been going through that stack, and the Siberiad was in that stack. I read it. I texted Corey the Siberiad rules, and that's basically the origin story of today's episode. Um, just to backtrack slightly, you mentioned regular listeners if they exist. If you do exist, hello! Thank what? you! How can you, you can't be a regular re- listener of an irregular podcast. Like, it's not possible. Uh, yeah, I think it is. <laughs> hello to our fan. But anyway. So Stanislav Lam was born in 1921 in Lviv. Then World War II happened, so Lviv is now Lviv in Ukraine. He spent most of his life in Krakow. And he died in 2006. He has a huge body of work that he created in the meantime. The Siberiad is considered one of the most important ones in that stack. So Solaris, obviously, probably his most influential work. Number two is probably the Siberiad. And we're going to go back to Corey's point about his expectations and what the experience of reading this book actually was. <laughs> like, what did you think that this was going to be, Corey? So I, I think for a little bit of context, actually, um, North America science fiction, in, sorry, science fiction fans in North America were used to North American science fiction. And there's a certain tradition there, things like the cyberpunk movement. Prior to that, you get a lot of things like Philip K. Dick and Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And those raise questions about cybernetics, about computers, about artificial intelligence. And they have a tendency to do it with focusing not exclusively on the darker aspects of it, but with the perils of it certainly being a big theme. And I was kind of expecting something similar. I was kind of expecting, you know, short stories and like, the robot dystopia is like, okay, what is the nightmare scenario of where this technology can lead us? And lo and behold, this entire book is a comedy. A very funny comedy, don't get me wrong. Like, it's hilarious, but I'm like, oh, I thought this was going to be, like, much more darker and much more serious. But it's actually, it's very playful. I think we've been introduced to Lem through Solaris, and you expect that most of his work is going to be serious. And the truth is, most of his work isn't. (laughs) I think that's a good point. I think maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why Solaris stands out, is because it is such a serious work. Sorry, just, just to clarify, I don't want to say that, you know, comedy and humor isn't important and doesn't make good points at all. Like, far from it. It's just the tone of Solaris is a very serious story. It's not meant to be comedic where this clearly is. Yeah, and I was about to chime in that what I said not serious. I mean, yes, mm. you could take this seriously as literature. It's just that it's funny. A lot a big chunk of Stanislav Lem's books are funny. Tales of Perks the Pilot, hilarious. The Star Diaries has a sentient potato at one point. He wrote quite a bit of comedy and just like looking at science fiction from a very light, light lens or just looking at the absurdities of the real world through science fiction. Well, and I think um, another aspect of that, like I said, the North American tradition or at least the English speaking tradition of science fiction Sci-fi comedy probably existed right from the beginning, but I know like the big example people always point out is kind of like kickstarting comedic science fiction is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. 
and that didn't come out till the 1980s. Lem was writing much earlier than that and was writing comedic science fiction. One of the reasons it took me a while, because there's kind of two experiences that I might pull out. One is the just the text itself, like the stylistic experience of the language. But the the language is a constant barrage of quite dizzying kind of prose. So it's a little it can be a little exhausting just because there are so many puns. And like um, a canticle for Leibowitz, if you understand Latin, it's pretty good. The Latin is is particularly funny in this too. Um, and then the second experience would would be like the philosophical ones. And I can't help but wonder if some of the barrage of the comedy has to do with the political circumstances under which this is written to make it a little exhausting for certain kinds of people who might read what you're writing and thus make them pass over some of the uh, content that you're really getting at. So I don't know how much of that's intentional. It's funny. Like, I'd agree, it's totally very funny and actually really, really entertaining. Um, But there's a lot... I think it's because in the face of a lot of authority, that absurdity is probably the safest kind of way to react against that or respond to that, or else you are just in despair. There's a certain amount of despair going through in the themes in this. I I think um, very briefly, an important contextual point that Maria just brought up, a lot of Stanislaw Lem's work was never actually translated directly from Polish to English. Because he was publishing from a Warsaw Pact country, um, because of the Cold War being what it was, it was actually very hard to get cultural exchange. So a lot of his work was first translated into French, because France and Poland apparently had more strict cultural exchange laws, and then from French to English. So this is actually like a double translation. So I also wonder how much of an effect that's going to have. I think that this book was directly translated from Polish. Okay. Just from looking in the front matter here, uh, I've seen this book in Polish. I had a chance to buy it in Polish and didn't. Now I'm kicking myself. Oh, I was going to see ask it in the library. You, I was going to ask if you had ever read it in Polish because the puns are so good. Uh, and, I'm, and whoever translated it did like a really, I think, excellent job of maintaining the kind of like, it's like, you know, how when like translating asterisks into English, like to really get the jokes of the names and the things and the specific word to word moments, as well as the bigger jokes to translate. I'm like, that's a kudos to the translator. It's <laughs> just what I'm going to say. Good job. I think you probably captured it. This was translated by Michael Candle, who is has done previous Polish to English translations. So I think the chances are pretty good mm-hmm. that this was a direct translation. Again, I did not have a chance to read this in Polish, so I can't tell you what the puns were in Polish and how you make that transition. Because like Marie said, this is a lot like when people translate Terry Pratchett into other languages, yeah. <laughs> where you have to have somebody who really knows what they're doing to be able to get those puns to translate across Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the puns in the siberiad as pointed out are very good (laughs) and frequent every sentence has a pun in it so i hope you like puns (laughs) so what is the siberiad since we've been talking about it for a bit in terms of style but not actually saying what it is Corey mentioned that he knew it was a short story collection is it It's definitely a bunch of narratives that are put together, but it's framed as something like the Arabian Nights, where it's it's a bunch of stories that are related, fairy tales, specifically fairy tales about robots, for robots, 
Yeah, it's two in particular, two constructors named Trurl and Clopotius. However, you might say that. I have no idea how to say the other name. I, I was reading it as Clopatius. Yeah, and so. I went with Clopatius. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, I think you're right to point out that's kind of like the Arabian Nights. It's, that, it's what I would consider like a weird hybrid of novel and short story in that it's a bunch of smaller narratives moving through time, and they're all about the same character or characters, but they're not necessarily reliant on the others. The others just came before. Yeah, they do reference back to the others. And there is an overall structure, like the number of Sallies are like proceed in a numerical and with sub subversions, like 6A or whatever. <laughs> Um, that sort of like show that it 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 already it knows that there's others coming, as it were. So it's like collected in into one idea. But you could read any one of these, and they would make sense by themselves. Other than the very uh, third last, I'd say the the tale of the three storytelling machines, which is I don't know many layers of storytelling going on. <laughs> It almost feels like it was kind of tacked on just because it's not about Troll and Clapatius, but it still fits. It is about Troll. In the in the total frame of it, it's Troll. Builds the storytelling machines. Right. Sorry, and the then machines yeah, telling it's, right. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's still around as much as they are in, in any of them. Sometimes they're in and some more, some, sometimes they're less. That was actually the one that I thought, or I was starting to get more of what he might be trying to communicate in this. Cause I think he just had more time in that one bigger story to delve into some themes. Also, I read it this morning, so it's pretty fresh in my memory. Just a fun point is it took Corey a while to figure out that Trurl and Clopatius were robots. Yeah. I, I yeah. somehow missed that. And then you mentioned it to me. I'm like, Oh my God, they are. It wasn't until halfway through. Because at the beginning, I knew there was lots of shenanigans going on, and I was like, well, they certainly seem to be living for thousands of years. I don't know if they're just, um, like, epic creatures, like epic humans that sort of don't exist in, in any particular timeline or not. And it wasn't really until about halfway through where it, like, said more specifically that for sure they were not human. It, he left it sort of vague at the beginning, and then it became clearer and clearer as okay, time went on. Okay, good. So that wasn't me missing an important no. detail early on. That was just not said till later. Yeah. yeah. I'm not just poking at you, Corey. This is a point of it. It's it's not really clear at the beginning mm -hmm. what Trurl and Clapotius are. Yeah. But you do eventually go, oh, they're made out of metal. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's actually one theme the book even talks about, too, is the idea that, you know, robots build other robots, and eventually building robots leads to building organic life, and eventually organic life creates other organic life, and it leads to building robots. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one of the elements of this world where nobody actually knows what came first, organic life or machine life. They just know that eventually one will create the other, and it's like this ongoing cycle. Yeah, there's that's it's in one of the I think it's actually in the three, one of the three storytelling machines ones with the philosopher that was writing great philosophy that nobody was really reading and it was only going to be posthumously interesting to other people. He was very mad about it. Who I think determined that probably like um but organic creatures were first. Um but that's also sort of I think what you'd expect like going into the story that you'd expect that humans make a machine and then things happen. But then it's so you would think at the beginning that Trill and Clapatius were humans. And then later on, you kind of 
it gets you really have to realize that you don't know you get it's a nice rug pull effect i think on just your assumption well I, going for what you just said i think um that kind of ties into what i had expected the story to these stories to be right is that conflict between humanity and machines that inevitably comes up in so much of science fiction um, but I think another aspect of it as well is, despite being, like, as we said, this is humorous, but by no means is this a light book. Like, Lem was very much concerned with, you know, quote-unquote big questions. And so there's kind of a playful way of addressing those questions in this book. It's like, okay, well, you know, can we create other types of life? Can those types of life in turn create us again? And where does this ultimately all, where, where does life ultimately come from? What is life? Like, those are things he's very much engaging with in this book, albeit in a funny way. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's actually refreshing to see somebody who's willing to be humorous about that. Yeah, in terms of the Siberiad structure, I'm not really sure if there's any antecedent to it going in or coming out from the other end. I have not really seen this structure used in other books that have come after. Like, clearly a lot of people read the Siberiad, but I don't think its structure has been that big of an influence going forward. But what it's calling back to is the Arabian Nights, any kind of collection of fairy tales or other Mm -hmm. legends, folk tales that you might come across. It is kind of like Grimm's fairy tales, but what if the Grimm brothers were constructors and also robots yeah, kind of I mean, it's, it's kind of a it's a frame narrative without a frame narrative that or without a framing device if that makes sense it, it did make me think of like like ancient epics like gilgamesh and things where there's just yeah. uh, or like the romance of the four kingdoms three kingdoms but yeah whichever i haven't actually read that oh, one like the, but just like those the journey to the to the west there's just a lot of stuff that yeah. happens with the same characters and it's and it has that kind of feeling of epicness where it's like you don't know if these stories involving these people really involved any of these people or if they're just placeholders for like the story yeah like, i think they, that that mythic it had it has a mythic feel to all of it i think journey to the west would be a better analog because mm-hmm. again that that is a frame narrative about the same characters where mm-hmm. romance of the three kingdoms i mean you could certainly draw parallels but that's trying to be quote unquote serious history mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's clearly heavily fictionalized mm-hmm. and you have the sense that this is not the only things that Truro and Clopotius got up to oh no they definitely get the a course of their very long lives yeah, they definitely get up to way more shenanigans than this like, well, there's lots of like oblique references to, well, that's a tale for another time, and you no, you don't or get like that. Or like this tale. reminder of the thing they did that you haven't read about. Noodle incident. <laughs> Noodle incident. <laughs> so we already kind of touched on the world this take play this takes place in, but I also find it one of the most fascinating aspects of the Siberiad is that it's a fu- it's the future, far far off in the future. Uh, humans are around, but they're not really important per se. There are both inorganic and organic forms of life that have populated across the galaxy, and these stories are particularly concerned with the inorganic forms of life. So there are kingdoms of robots, various kinds of robots, various societies of robots with various cultures, and it's exploring that and just this whole other aspect of creation and we kind of talked about this too, and whether the humans came first. Well, at this point in its far future, it doesn't matter. 
the narrative seems pretty ambivalent about it. Like the robots probably don't. Most of the robots would not admit that humans came first is the impression that I get. Mm -hmm. They're just living off in their own cultures at this point. Yeah, the impression I had was a little different. It's not so much that humanity doesn't matter as humanity is not the focus, right? Like despite being set in the far future, this is very much meant to seem like something that would have been written five, six hundred years ago, where people may have had awareness of other cultures like way on the other side of the planet, but they would literally have no contact with them. So why do those cultures matter? Instead, they're focusing more on, you know, who are we as a people? What is our experience? I and I can't help but feel because I mean, the, there's lots of themes of violence in this, but the the big theme that I sort of see in this story is about like authority and prestige is mainly what's being talked about in the various kings and kingdoms. And also the like rapaciousness of like Troll and Kalpatius who are all about treasure <laughs> and, and fame as well. Um, and I, th- and I think in some ways by making this a fairy tale of robots by robots you're able to talk a lot about some current problems going on in the lifetime of the author without being too terribly obvious. But the the subtext, I'd say, is pretty strong. So I don't know... Because uh, I, th- I think these are, these are pretty re- resistant stories against authority in a lot of ways, because it shows it to be largely foolhardy um, in an extreme degree. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, I, I think a big part of it, like you said, because of when and where these were being written, I, I think the idea of kings was, you know, in, in the Warsaw Pact countries, it was like, oh, yeah, kings are evil. You can lampoon kings all you want. Whereas Lem is using kings as kind of a stand in for all power. Right. Like he, he's very much poking fun at authorities in a way that he's allowed to get away with. The number of. The number of secret police and KGB-related, like, wiretapping things that happen in these stories constantly. It's just like, that's just what you expect with authority. And it's it's pretty well written so that you could always be like, oh, no, this is just a silly story. If you were really, like, pressed on it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's that's what I mainly came out of it. And and, uh, I have a a lot of... I think I had a hard time getting through it because I found it pretty melancholy underneath the jokes. It's pretty funny, but there's a definite like, mm, there's a definite sadness. I I I sort of sense underneath. I, I would almost call it like a heaviness of spirit. Yeah. Like there, there's, it's clearly funny, but it's laughing to kind of hide some pain as well. I think it's like if you don't laugh, you're going to cry, and if you don't make fun of the absurdity, you're going to go insane. Is my feeling from it? I don't know if you had that experience or not, Mike. I did. I don't know if it's specific to growing up in or being in communist Poland at the time that Stanisław Lem was writing, because clearly I talked to my parents who were living it around the same time, and you could just kind of get on with your life depending on your situation. But to me, you could be writing this from a perspective from anywhere. And just the feelings against authority and the absurdities of being in human society would come across the same way. Which I guess would be why the Siberiad would be popular, I think. Mm -hmm. No matter which language it ended up being translated in at the time. Mm -hmm. 
Now, we did kind of talk about the allegorical aspects of this, but I wanted to laser in on this idea of constructing a robot mind. Because I find this is something that Lem has explored in his other works about exploring other alien societies. Solaris has a an intelligence that encompasses an entire planet, which we can't really understand. His other books have got into these ideas of communication and just being faced with other cultures that are so far removed from what a human could really interface with. And this is very much a case of imagining works or a literature that's being created by a highly alien culture. Like, we still have touch points, we still go for the allegorical reading on that, and there's definitely a huge human element to that, but Lem is still constructing a kind of fairy tales with very removed morals from what we would expect to find in a fairy tale, and that is supposed to reflect back uh, what the robot culture these stories is coming from is like. No, I I think you're right. Like, I think... um it's impossible to get away from Solaris while you're talking about Lem. So I, I think there is a lot of similarity there, right? Like it's the notion that the human experience is not necessarily the only experience. And maybe there are other ways of conceiving the universe. And, you know, on a very abstract level, that's important because you can get into the argument that, okay, well, what if there are other forms of life, other life forms that just view the world differently But it also opens up the ground for the argument that why do we always view the world in the same way? Why can we not open ourselves up to considering different options or considering different perspectives? This is something Ursula K. Le Guin talked at length about, that you could use science fiction as just opening up acceptance in people's minds to other ways of doing things and other ways of being and other ways you can construct a society. I am going to badly paraphrase a quote, but yeah, Le Guin's famous line was something to the effect of, you know, I send imaginary people to imaginary planets to live imaginary ways because I'm very concerned with the limited and destructive ways we're living on our own. Mm -hmm. It's not an exact quote, but that's the sentiment of it. And Lem is very much picking up on the same thing. It's, you know, what else is out there? How else can we view the world? Well, and I mean, in a story wrapped in robots on a planet doing a task for a king, you get something about how authority is applied senselessly and for personal gain is bad for people in general. <laughs> like it tells it tells a uh, a pretty clear kind of story about that, or you get how we don't listen to like the great minds of now only in like retrospect. Um, obviously that philosopher one, I'm like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's a, that one in particular, I thought was a one that stuck with me. So it's, you could kind of trick people. And that's sort of like, when you think about is all, is all literature, some kind of um, propaganda to some degree that you can trick people into like being introduced to an idea in if they're interested in like st- space travel and robots and fun stuff like that i mean I, I think it also ties in with there is a certain element of absurdity to it too right like i mean yes all these characters are robots but they're very clearly meant to be stand-ins for certain human things and it's a way of you know looking at and poking fun at the absurdity of the real world too 
Now, while this text is focused on robots, it's not that humans aren't in it. There are a few tales where there are humans, or at least human-like creatures. Uh, the, the narrative voice seems to be pretty disgusted by their organic nature. Yeah, the last tale in particular, I think, <laughs> is the one that most clearly has humans and robots as different things, for sure. Now that we're at the end of the Siberian, and we're clear on what, what all is going on here. Yeah. It does make me wonder what exactly pleasure was meant to be in robots, though, <laughs> like how that comes about. But there's also just as much as there's like a human life and or an organic life and a mechanical inorganic life, there's no great distinction between like the types of experiences between these two creatures. See, he's just completely kind of collapsed to that as being like there isn't they're just people of some of some type. Yeah, the text is kind of disinterested in the organic or inorganic nature of these societies. Like, mm -hmm. yes, Tror and Klepotius are robots. They're in a society of robots. That's kind of the circles that they're in. But there are other worlds. There are other types of people. And in many ways, they deal with the same crap that everybody else does. <laughs> I think um, that's another kind of brilliant point of the book, too, because we mentioned the idea of, you know, different perspectives, different ways of looking at the world, while at the same time also reminding us that, you know, different people still have very similar concerns. Like, at the end of the day, people are still people, regardless of where they're from, and they still have certain things they want to see happen and that they worry about. So that all being said, the Siberiad still is unusual in the canon of science fiction, particularly Western science fiction, in centering robots in the way it does. And there is, of course, another book that centers robots that I think we all know about, which is iRobot by Isaac Asimov, and how that the lens of iRobot against the lens that the Siberiad takes, because the Siberiad is from a robot perspective, just about robots interacting with other robots in the main, while iRobot and a lot of science fiction stories that came out of North America and England about robotics are about how do humans interact with robots and the reflection of robots on humans, and usually the stories center particularly around robot and human relationships. Yeah, like, um, iRobot, which I will concede I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, I'm not a big Asimov fan to begin with, but most of the tension in those stories comes from, you know, humans misunderstanding how robots interpret their directions and their wishes. Um, you know, the characters are always humans, Robots are always the problem, either because they're not functioning the way humans want or because they're interpreting human requests according to their own understanding, and then that's frustrating the humans. Yeah, or humans are imperfectly logical, whereas robots are perfectly logical. Yes, and perfect um, logic in turn leads to breakdowns of communication. What's the... Um, could you say for me, because this will actually help me sort of, I think, answer Mike's ultimate question for me on this one. There's the transition from, like, sci-fi to cyberpunk, like, the question that's asked. Can you oh, just restate that? Yeah, here? so, <laughs> new wave science fiction, the question... Sorry, new wave of science fiction looks at a robot, says, is this human? 
cyberpunk looks at all life and says what is human and are we it yeah and i sort of see lem as kind of going oh who gives a shit about that we're going to tell some stories here that about like what it means to be persons um and use this vehicle i mean Asimov is a hard person to like having read you know iRobot Foundation Trilogy, other things by Asimov, oh, the stars like dust, ugh, that was a waste of my time. Um, and uh, did he, uh, no, I'm thinking of a different person. Uh, he, like, he's, Asimov is dry, his characters do not sparkle off the pages, pages, uh, like, in competition, Lem is much better to read. <laughs> uh, I'd rather spend time with Twirl and Klapausius than, like, anyone <laughs> Asimov stories. Well, I think an important point, too, is that mm -hmm. Asimov wasn't actually the new wave of science fiction. Mm -hmm. Old, Asimov is older than that. Mm -hmm. So when he was writing, he wasn't concerned with, you know, is this a form of life? Mm -hmm. He was concerned with, okay, what are the potential conflicts or troubles of this technology? Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, obviously the new wave mm -hmm. is still asking that, but in a much more sophisticated way. Yeah. Like like you said, I mean, Asimov's characters, they're always flat. They're always very uninteresting. And I think part of that is the type of story Asimov is writing is almost pulp. It's, I think it's kind of, it comes to kind of like the kind of person Asimov is, because he was a scientist. I, I think a biochemist, and I'm not I'm not completely certain. Um and in the and in the time period that he was, <laughs> I think just the kind of like dryness, scientific realism comes out in that story. The very like positivistic view, which robs it of like a pulse. <laughs> and uh, whereas I think Lem has a lot more about like relations, construction of realities, literal construction of creatures. So the fact that robots and the various types of creatures can build each other in this world all the time makes up the fact that there's no question about realities being constructed to some degree because they're all building each other and the world's around them constantly and you literally affect the world by building um, or changing or there's a lot there's like three times that there's like oh we just modeled the entire universe obviously and then that's how you get some answer out of something is from your model which is a very tongue-in-cheek kind of joke at people like Asimov who like in the foundation trilogy for example has like this sociological modeling of what's going to happen on what the it's the planet's called foundation I think right and then it's like from that you can then predict what's going to happen whereas <laughs> these guys in uh, the Siberia they're like oh just build a model of the universe and so, like you know set it up to now and then we'll get the answer to our question then we don't have to do all that kind of work and it's kind of like that's exactly what people are actually like <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you had all this power. Again, the Siberiad <laughs> deals with literally being able to construct reality and acknowledging the idea of that reality is in some part construct. Whereas Asimov, like you said, very scientific positivist. Yes, there's tension. Yes, there's issues. But it's always, oh, look at the kinks we need to iron out in this wonderful technology. And, you know, how amazing is the science here? Yeah, so, well, Asimov no, the science is not necessarily amazing if it's potentially horrifying. Yeah, because Asimov doesn't have the concern about authority. He doesn't... Asimov, like a lot of people, assume that corruption's like an accident and that we'd all sort of keep on a trajectory towards continued like evolutionary improvement, along which technology is kind of a part of... Whereas Lem is like, 
if you give, if you give this kind of shit to bad actors, bad shit's going to go down. And that's actually to be expected and not really accidental. That's that's just what would go on. So I think they just have a very different view of mm-hmm. what kinds of things are the problem or could be a problem or how problems enter into worlds. And I mean, I, I don't think this is going to surprise anyone in my saying this, but if, if we're going to create a binary between the two perspectives, I, I'm going to lean towards Lem for sure. Yeah, I mean, at some point in my life, I'll probably reread iRobot again. I still think there's something useful and good and, and entertaining about the stories. But I also have the ability to go through some really dry prose, <laughs> maybe. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say there's no value in iRobot, because obviously there is. But I, I would go so far as to say I don't think I would get much out of reading it again. Mm-hmm. Whereas I could see myself returning to the Siberiad and getting a lot out of it. And it's important to say there's no binary being mm-hmm. constructed here. No. Like, I bring up iRobot because Marie is our resident Asimov enthusiast. Well, I, <laughs> Her previous so comments pretty, do not say fan. And I, well, yeah. I, I remember when I was Hold reading, on, hold on. I've been accused of being an Asimov enthusiast, although I just realized I do have a t-shirt of iRobot that I do wear, actually. So I'm like, maybe that's correct. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm positively inclined but I just sort of set Asimov in the time period and type of person he was. Yeah. Well, I, I was actually the one who raised the point when I was reading this that I'm like, this reminds me of iRobot. Like, I, I think it is a much more interesting work than iRobot, but I, I think even while I consider iRobot to have a lot of shortcomings, they are still in some capacity touching on the same ground, right? They are still looking yeah. at the idea of, you know, manufactured life and, you know, artificial intelligence and robotics. And while they obviously take very different perspectives on how that can manifest and what the implications are, they are still coming from the same roots. I think I just realized also, like, Asimov always assumes that humans, like, the robots never can really break free and become their own thing, right? Asimov always assumes that we're going to always be the creators, ideally benign, maybe mistaken because we're organic. Whereas in the Siberiad, we're long, we're long irrelevant <laughs> to anything to do with robots. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's, you can't imagine like having a crazed king that's going to want to start a war so you get all the subjects to connect up together and then they get so lost in philosophy that they don't end up having a war at all, which is a great story. Um, Mecha Philosophatron! Yeah, that was was pretty great. Um, like you can't imagine... I, I made that word up now, that's not the title of the story. Yeah, I think it was like Gigantus or something was the name of the solution to that problem. You can't imagine that being even the premise for a story in a world where, well, humans control robots ultimately. So, you know, it doesn't get off the ground. I don't think the Siberiad is a response to iRobot. I don't even think it's in dialogue Mm -hmm. with iRobot. But it is kind of in dialogue with other science fiction stories like iRobot that consider robots entirely through their interactions with humans for story seeds. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like Marie said, iRobot kind of always makes the assumption humans will be around. Robots were made to serve humans, and so it goes. Well, I think at their most fundamental level, the difference between the two is that iRobot is a collection of stories about technology. The Siberiad is a collection of stories about people. Didn't Lem read Philip K. Dick? Isn't there some interaction between Lem and 
dick in uh, <laughs> yes there's a, there, there's a philip k yeah, yeah. philip there's... k dick was one of the few north american science fiction writers lem had a large admiration for he found a lot of the others were stuck in like this very pulp root mentality of it's always got to be like the pulp science fiction whereas he enjoyed yeah. dick and considered philip k dick was actually you know engaged with producing literature and ideas i didn't I only caught it, yes. like, slightly off the side. I didn't read the introduction, but I saw something about maybe Dick betrayed Lim to the FBI about something. Yeah. There was a whole <laughs> he, thing that happened. He, he thought that Stanislav Lem was the collective of propagandists from the communist bloc that was trying to corrupt oh. the West. Yeah. So <laughs> he did not return Lem's admiration, but Corey is correct that out of Western science fiction authors, mm -hmm. Philip K. Dick was one of the few that Stanislav Lem found remotely interesting. He had a low opinion mm -hmm. of most Western science fiction of that time. I was going to ask if his low opinion was fair in some ways, we have to consider this in what was available that was translated from English into Polish. And a lot of that would have been 50s pre-New Wave kind of stuff. I mean, I, I think if you're talking so about... Yeah. I think if you're talking about criticizing an art movement and asking, is the criticism fair? It always both is and isn't. If an art movement reaches the point where it's actually a movement, then so much work is being produced that inevitably a lot of it is going to, you know, to a T, fit the criticism. And yes, absolutely be worthy of that criticism. The unfortunate side of that, though, is that that also means a lot of the positive things are being ignored. But again, it's a movement. So, so much like just through sheer volume, you're going to end up with a large volume of, frankly, uninspired work. What would be the kind of things he was reading or, like, looking at? Asimov, Clark, Heinlein. Oh, well, you know. Yeah. Those yeah. Kind of Frederick Pohl, those, uh, that kind of... Because <laughs> Clark was the other person I was thinking of, thinking of 2001 as also being another pretty dry kind oh, of... Oh, Arthur C. Clark is ridiculously dry. I'll take, like, I'll take Asimov over Clark, I'd say, even though uh, 2001 is, an I would say, is an important story like get that in in terms of uh sci-fi but yeah and Heinlein well and Heinlein I think would be he'd be pretty alarmed <laughs> about Heinlein as I am pretty alarmed when I read Heinlein too yeah so. I've read very little Heinlein outside of Starship Troopers mm -hmm. and like don't get me wrong he definitely wrote some very good stories and they're not all focusing on politics some of them are you know focusing on ideas and questions but a lot of them sure they are just you know action stories mm -hmm. and I, I think that's kind of the conflict that lem was kind of picking up on is that in the 1950s going into the 60s when science fiction was finally gaining grounding as a literary movement it was going from being oh you know these are just silly adventure stories to well no we're actually writing about things in the guise of silly adventure stories, right? So th there was always that conflict. And you, you even see this now. There's always that conflict of people just thinking science fiction is, you know, action stories. And so then you get people who resist that, and then you get people who buy into it wholeheartedly. So it's not going to surprise anyone that many new wave authors cited Lem as an influence or would praise Lem. Oh, not at all. At the yeah, time no, that the very... new wave was happening. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I don't know that Le Guin ever specifically cited Lem as an influence. Okay, you're shaking your head that she did, and that clearly shows. It's, again, with, like, thinking about Clark and Asimov as being pretty positivistic, and to some, I've, again, also only read Starship Troopers. Heinlein's a, a little bit more like, he's in that kind of evo-psych, fas- heading towards fascism kind of strain of inevitability. Um I think in that kind of literature, there's a definite, like, kind of like stuff from, like, when you think about religious studies, like the Golden Bough, like, you, you know, we have religion and magic and myth, and then we have science, and then we're going to move away from all that myth-making. I think Lem is like, myth-making's really important, and this is like a vehicle for us to do that, so that we have, so that we can think about it in a new kind of way. But also kind of in an old kind of way, like we're talking about how this reads a lot like epics of old time, where all kinds of magic shenanigans, like I can, I can think of lots of, you, of you mentioned the stories word. that would have this sort of changeability, immutability of, of the form of the characters that would just not be explained as technology specifically, but this is a way to use that style again and get people to read it and think again that way, which maybe he felt was being lost. I don't know. I'm guessing on that one. Well, you, you, you use the word positivistic, and it's come up several times at this point, and I think therein kind of lies a good distinction and a good grounds for criticism. I think things that are taking the view of being innately positivistic towards anything, they're always going to be naive to some extent or another. And in rejecting positivism, you're actually able to offer valid criticism. Whereas if you're just being a positivist, it's like, oh, well, no, technology is always good. Science is always good. And then you get someone like Lamb, it's like, uh, no, this is equally a form of myth-making. And that form of myth-making has equal capacity to be destructive. It depends on what we do with it. And to some degree, just as he has like text and metatextual ways, he's like, we could also have just way more interesting stories, guys, <laughs> with more puns. So we all like this book. Mm-hmm. Stanislav Lem, clearly a hugely influential author, the Siberiad, well-regarded at the time, a lot of people love it. Unfortunately, listeners, if you want to buy this right now, it is out of print. This is most of Stanislav Lem's body of work. Uh, I talked to Corey about this on previous occasions. As far as we can tell, a lot of it has to do with translation rights issues. Mm which might stem from that process of from Polish to a different language to a different language to English for some books. For other books, it's not clear. Uh, I definitely believe these should be available, and obviously they're available in Polish if you have the privilege, like I do, of being able to read it. But because Lem was so influential on the new wave movement of science fiction, it would be great if all of this material was still available. So uh, the good news is it kind of is. Um, I tried ordering this through my local bookstore and they weren't able to because it was out of print, but they were able to turn me to a website that is, I'm forgetting the name. I will get it to you and you can put it in the show notes. Book Depository. Thank you. The Book Depository website and so that's actually where I was able to get a print copy. So there are ways that they're just not as easy. I just noticed something which I actually did want to talk about. Normally blurbs on covers don't have that much meaning. <laughs> but there is a blurb on here that is actually pretty good. I don't know if you have this particular one. We have this penguin classic. 
I have the Avon books oh, that's 70s good. edition. All of the stack of my lem is these Avon books. Yeah. So mad. Yeah. <laughs> kind of old weathered paperbacks. Yeah. What's the price on there? Like 25 cents? Two dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I like about this one on the cover of the modern classics by Penguin is that this robot, which is largely empty of stuff on the inside, looks like it's got its arms akimbo and is vaguely upset <laughs> and is a similar shape to the robot on your cover. But getting back to the blurb, which this one is from the New York Times and I don't know, whatever, people who review books say all kinds of things and they get snippeted onto covers, but um they, it calls George Louis. It calls this a George Louis Bor- Borges for the space age. And I don't know. Have you guys read Borges? Yes. Yes. No. Yep. As a very apt yeah. blurb. And that might... another author very influenced by the Arabian Nights yeah. and other kind of folktale fable. We 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 might even yeah. want to think about getting back to that specifically because Ficciones is a great short story collection I don't think you've read it Corey. No, I haven't. Um, but to me yes it's exactly the same kind of thing because I can imagine the giant sort of infinite library conceived by Borges because uh, a lot of that stuff was sort of like more like magic kind of stuff but very similar to do very similar themes and um, yeah I'm just going to say that I I th- I don't know if he had any actual exposure to Borges though cuz that would have been probably harder to come a- come across maybe. I, I would think that Borges was translated into Polish mm-hmm. at that time. I don't yeah. obviously don't have that information off of hand, mm-hmm. but I could see the interface between yeah. them there for sure. I mean, I think there is an argument to be made that a lot of the drive to create technology is just an effort to make myth real. And then you get a book like this, which in turn turns it technology back to myth. Yeah. And I, you know, <laughs> thank the universe for it because again, it's a wonderful book. It allows us to have, you know, it allowed us to have this conversation, but it also allowed us to have the experience of reading it. And this little burb is equally apt because Borges is also really influential in a lot of literature that we read in English now. Like his influence is huge, but mo- most many people in North America may not know him, may not have heard of him. <laughs> Similar for Lem, from the sort of view that we have. I mean, we specifically have come into reading Lem because two of you guys are did it as an academic thing. Probably Michael also because this is a Polish figure, which would be culture relevant. And then I'm like related to one of you so you know well, married to one of us yeah you know so but not if i went onto the street and be like hey have you read some stanislav lem they'd be like i don't know who that is so similarly passing into kind of a but people would know who ursula Kayla Gwynn is they'd know like subsequent authors inspired by lem so yeah if it would be very sad if both of these authors lem and borges were completely kind of left out but then again, we're all going to be left out because none of the robots in the future are going to remember us. They're going to be busy doing their own shit. I mean, on the <laughs> so... topic of gorgeous, you now know what to get me for Christmas, I guess. I think Fixiones is also out of print, but I might be able to find it. I have an ebook version, but yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't see the gorgeous books that I have on the shelf. Mm. So I can't can't go through a recommendation list. Before we left, I wanted to know if your edition had 
illustrations in it or not. Yes, it did, yes. Yes, it did. Yes. <laughs> and I, I would like to say they are wonderful because what makes them wonderful is by the you know the 60s, the 70s, when a lot of the stuff was coming to North America, science fiction kind of had an established aesthetic already. Like people picture science fiction, you know, th there's images of Star Trek, Star Wars, and things that are clearly influenced by that. This is so far out of that same tradition that the illustrations are like just these absurd, crazy, like almost cartoonish drawings. And they're wonderful because they're so unfamiliar. Like you look at science fiction art, you can see what it's in dialogue with. These are kind of these are not in dialogue with that so they're actually refreshing because of it yeah and it's not until later when you realize that these are like what these are really pictures are of sorry it's like it just sort of shows with the way that they've been drawn it's like this is so stupid <laughs> it's definitely the kind of energy coming from these kinds of um mm -hmm. pictures i want to say so the illustrator is daniel Mruse. I just wanted to make sure we mentioned that mm -hmm. because it's important to credit artists. Yes. And while I think you could read this in a non-illustrated edition and be perfectly happy with it, mm -hmm. they do add a little a little something yeah. when you're reading this because the illustrations, they're line art and they are bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> well, in a book that's cons in a book that's almost obsessed with the absurdities of life. It's nice to have a little more bizarreness thrown in. It actually made me think of an episode of Aeon Flux, of which I've only seen about three episodes. Well, that's a tangent. That's a tangent. <laughs> where, but it just made me think, because there's this one episode where I can't remember what the total thing, but ultimately she encounters something which is a future version of what humanity becomes, and she can't comprehend it because it looks so different. And a lot of this stuff is so, like... It's also drawn in this very... Um, Ab not abstract, kind of cubist, but not really specifically like linear. Like there's there's lots of soft edges, but kind of like weird looking way. And I'm like, it reminded me a lot of that. Also because they're kind of ugly in a great way. <laughs> so, yeah, not specifically at all like A and Flux. But I was like, this is just me encountering something that I don't understand. Um, I think, but also there's a lot of boobs and butts in here. <laughs> I think many of them are so ugly as to actually kind of take on a type of cuteness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're charming. Yeah, they're, um, they are. Yeah, it's not like they're unpleasant to look at, but they are like drawn in a deliberately clumsy way. Yeah, yeah, they're they're hilarious. So that brings us to final thoughts, guys. I only have one more thing to say about the Siberiad, which is it rules. If you're able to get your hands on a copy, please do. I will echo that sentiment. Um, it's very fun. It's not necessarily like a rapid, like, you know, you'll be done it in 20 minutes, but it, it no. is certainly worth reading. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is really good. I do think it comes together more later on in some ways. And there's a, there's a lot of befuddlement. <laughs> I did feel at the beginning, but uh, yeah, no, I think, I think it's something that will also meet the criteria for a lot of the things that we, we, at least on this podcast, call great books, which is it re would reward rereading so mm -hmm. yeah worth it that that is something i've encountered with all of stanislav lem's work so far i mean as i said i'm going through a stack of these so i've actually read a significant amount now a claim i could not make <laughs> before this year uh so far no stinkers i can tell you that uh 
Siberia deserve his place as being the one that's cited maybe the most often besides Solaris and his master's voice, but his entire library, this was a great writer. If you can get your hands on him, do it. Uh, He's influential, and there was a reason for that. And I sure hope that his work becomes more available mm-hmm. in English so people can enjoy the same pleasures that I do reading. We, we should probably cite that there is like a new audiobook translation of Solaris that is direct from Polish. There's no mm-hmm. direct from Polish Solaris print version, but if people do consume audiobooks, it's a, it would be a good way to probably encourage the more downloads it gets, the more publishers might realize that this is work people would like. So. <laughs> so in short, be on the lookout for Lem and sentient potatoes. Yes. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find past episodes, you can go to my website, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. This podcast is available on a bunch of platforms. Your podcatcher should be able to get it so that you can subscribe. We do not have a set schedule. We record oh, we sure we don't. feel like it. <laughs> if you guys loved this, sorry, it's going to be ages before we do another one. So yeah, don't expect like more than a few episodes a year, but we definitely enjoy doing this. Uh, can people find you guys anywhere anymore? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, theoretically, I would still be at shrinkandexpand.com. Has it done anything? No. Am I a new psychiatrist in, in practice? Yes. I still have aspirations, guys. Maybe one day you can read a really dead blog through there, though, if you wanted to. <laughs> I, I have aspirations to one day maybe look at considering developing an online presence. And meanwhile, my online presence is shrinking. So <laughs> <laughs> once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, go read left. <laughs>